take your Bibles out and turn with me back to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, the Lord willing, we'll finish out chapter 5 uh, today, maybe. Uh, the first point will take about 90 seconds. The second point, we could spend 90 minutes in it, okay? I won't, but anyway, we could. Uh, revenge, no. Leave vengeance to God. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the IRS agents in Washington, D.C. do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. God, I pray that you would speak to us through these words. Words that if we put them into practice and live them out, they would literally revolutionize every relationship that we have. Lord, we're reminded that we are to live them out. These aren't words for some bygone day. These aren't words for some ideal society that will never be. But these are words intended for each of us right here, right now. Give us strength. Difficult words as we will see later in the message. But Lord, remind us that you've called us not to be hearers of the word only, but doers. And by so doing, we will be the salt and the light of the world that Jesus spoke of. So God, give us strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read you a story, a true modern-day story that sums up this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, folks, there are things in this story that I want to warn you of that are not addressed in Matthew chapter 5. There's an issue in this story about a very serious crime, and that's not the point. There are issues in the Scripture in other places that deal better with that. What I want to focus on through this story is the response of the victim. Let me just read this story to you. It says, it was five days before Christmas when a stranger approached 10-year-old Christopher Carrier claiming to be a friend of his father. I want to buy your father a gift and I need your help, son. Can you help me? Eager to do something nice for his father, Christopher climbed aboard a motorhome that was parked up the street. The driver took Chris to a remote field claiming to be lost, and he asked Chris to get the map out and look at it. As Chris was doing so, suddenly he felt a sharp pain in his back. The stranger had stabbed him with an ice pick. 
The man drove the wounded boy down a dirt road, shot him in the left temple, and left him for dead in the alligator-infested Florida Everglades. Chris lay unconscious for six days until a driver found him. He miraculously survived his injuries, though he was blind in his left eye. Because he was unable to identify with his attacker, police could not make an arrest. For a long time, young Chris remained frightened despite police protection. Finally, at an invitation given after a church hayride, Christopher Carrier trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He recalls, I was overwhelmed with emotion because I knew that I had never been changed in my life. I knew that I had never personally surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Now this turning point in Chris's life came three years after the attack. At age 15, Chris shared his story for the very first time. He eventually felt called into full-time Christian ministry, which he began to pursue, and he wanted to help others find the peace and the joy in Christ that he finally had. In 1996, a detective told Chris over the phone that a man had confessed to the crime that had cost him his left eye and nearly his life. The man's name was David McAllister. Chris made plans to visit the feeble and now blind man living in a nursing home. The strong man that Chris remembered was now a frail, broken down 77-year-old man. Chris learned from the detective some of the background of what had happened years earlier. McAllister had been hired by Chris's father to work as a nurse for an ailing uncle. Chris's dad had caught McAllister drinking on the job and he fired him. The senseless attack on Chris was McAllister's way of taking revenge on Chris's dad. Initially, the old man would not engage with Chris and speak with him, but as Chris revealed more and more about himself, the man softened and finally broke down in tears and apologized. Chris said, I told him what you meant for evil, God has used for good and turned into a wonderful blessing. And he went on to share how his testimony had touched the lives of so many people and through that testimony and his own life change, countless numbers had come to saving faith in Christ. Chris went home and told his wife and kids about the meeting he had with his attacker. The entire family began making daily visits to the man in the nursing home. And during one of those visits, Chris had the opportunity of, leaving, of, of leading his childhood attacker to faith in Jesus Christ. Just a few days later, the old man in his sleep died peacefully. Chris Carrier says, I want everybody to understand that my story is not a story of regret. It is a story of redemption. We come to a section in the Sermon on the Mount today that's going to be one of the most difficult sections of Scripture that you will hear. I want you to understand something this morning. It's going to get very personal, but it's going to get very personable, uh, personal toward the church at large. And when I say the church at large, I mean the church universal. From what I'm told, unless I'm not told everything, and I know I'm not, you folks do a very good job from what I understand, at what we're going to cover today. Now, that doesn't mean that you're exempt from hearing this, and that doesn't mean that all of us have done a good job all of the time. But I just want you to understand, I'm covering words this morning that are going to be directed also at the church at large, the church universal, and some of the hardest-hitting words we could hear anywhere in the New Testament. 
These are words that if carried out and practiced would utterly transform society as we know it. And folks, Jesus intends us to live by these words. This is not intended to be viewed as, well, all of this would be, uh, uh, would be the case if we lived in an ideal world. No, Jesus intends them for your world right here and right now. And we need to understand that. We learn here that our response to those who hate us and use us is to be radically different from anything that we see being practiced in society. If you wanted to boil these verses down into one statement, I think it would be that that I've given you in your sermon notes page today, the central idea of the text that we are to repay evil with good. First thing I want you to see with me this morning, and we're going to be very quick here, is the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You say, does the Old Testament law really teach that? Yes, it does. And I want to show you. I've given it to you in your your page today and we're not going to read all of Exodus 21 and there are other places we could find similar verses in the Old Testament but Exodus 21 is probably the primary text here that Jesus is quoting from the Bible said there whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death but if he did not lie and wait for him but God let him fall into his hand then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning you shall take him from my altar that he may die look down at verse 22 when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child so that her children come out but there is no harm the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine but if there is harm then you shall pay life for life Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. Now folks, we need to understand that Exodus 21 was given to limit revenge and to regulate justice. If somebody poked your eye out, you could not in turn take their very life. So while Exodus 21 seems very extreme to us today, we've got to understand that back then in their culture, it was given to limit what they could do. If we were to read it only from the angle of allowance, it would seem bloodthirsty to us. But to them, it was, a, it was given as a divine limitation. Not only the, the law regulated, but the law limited as to what you could do. That was the purpose of it. Well, secondly, let's look at Jesus' fulfillment of the law. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Notice what Jesus is saying in the New Covenant. You want to get revenge? You want to practice revenge? No. Don't even go there. Break the cycle of violence. Break the cycle of revenge, trying to avenge personal wrongs all the time and leave that issue in the hands of God because you don't know everything anyway. And I don't. But God does. And so leave the matter to God. 
In the New Testament, in Romans 12, the Bible says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, what does this mean and what does it not mean? Does it mean that Jesus is establishing a society without any form of justice whatsoever? No. What Jesus is telling us is that you and I as individuals are not to settle the score. The Bible regulates that government is the tool that God has placed in society to handle justice. Listen to what uh, Paul in Romans 13 writes. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to the authority, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to, him, uh, to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, does that mean that the governing authorities are never to be uh, contradicted or resisted? No, it doesn't mean that either. We see cases in the New Testament that were legitimate cases of civil disobedience when the apostles said, we've got to obey God rather than you. When is civil disobedience in order for the Christian? It's in order any time the governing authority assumes to itself a power and an authority that is only God's. But in the Bible, when governing authorities were not doing that, we see the saints of God carrying about the Great Commission under whatever boundaries and limits had been set. God even told the exiles as they were going into the 70-year Babylonian exile, God told them, work for the good of the land because if the land prospers, you're going to prosper. And so from the biblical standpoint, it is the role of society at large through the arm of government to protect its citizens. The government is even given the role of capital punishment. Now, if you and I were to carry out capital punishment, it would be murder. But the government is given this allowance which has not been rescinded. It was instituted there in Genesis Now, nine, when Noah stepped off the ark, it was told to him, and it's never been rescinded in all the pages of Scripture. I wish these people who stand outside of prisons on the night somebody is being executed and they hold up signs in protest, thou shalt not murder. I wish before they would do that, somehow or another, they could be enrolled in a good biblical hermeneutics class. Because that's not what's going on. It would be what was going on if they were taking matters into their own hands. But the arm of government can do that. 
But folks, may I say to you that that is not even what Jesus is addressing here. May I say to you as well, contrary to what our Anabaptist forefathers said, whom I have great respect for. You ought to read the the testimonies and stories of some of our Anabaptist forefathers back in the 16th, 17th century. Wonderful, wonderful, godly men. But in contrast to what they say, what modern day Quakers and, and Amish say, Jesus is not even forbidding just war against nations. Too many want to use this text to say they'll not go to war even if drafted by their government to do so. Still others will use verses like this to say there should never ever under any circumstances be any kind of church discipline that ever takes place in a church because we're just to look the other way after all. This passage has nothing to do with any of that. Please don't use this passage in any of those ways. What Jesus is doing, rather, is he is breaking the cycle of hatred and violence between individuals and families. He deals with personal insults there in verse 39. In verse 39 he says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus is setting down a radical new ethic here for his followers. Rather than taking vengeance and taking matters into your own hands, simply take the loss. Turn the other cheek. Again, let me tell you what it's not saying. If you or someone that you know, nine out of ten times, maybe even more than that, 99.9%, it's either a woman or a child who is being beaten and abused. If that's you, get out, get some help, make sure the abuser gets some help. Jesus is not saying to a woman or a child here, Stay in that situation and get your head beat in. I remember about 15 years ago, a woman in this community came to me, and as she began telling me, she came in an emergency crisis situation, had to talk to somebody right then. She sat in my office, told me what her husband was doing, and I moved over toward the phone, and I said, you realize what I'm about to do, don't you? While counseling sessions are normally confidential, when somebody starts talking about an issue where their physical status or even life is at stake, I've got to call the authorities. And she said, well, I understand. And you know what we did? We got her help. We got her, helped her to get out of that. And so Jesus is not addressing here an ongoing situation of somebody battering your head in. He deals with personal injustices, verse 40. He says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Moving on in his words here, if somebody drags you into court, let the court handle it. If they take your shirt, give your cloak as well. What, what is he addressing here? He is addressing these frivolous, selfish lawsuits where everybody was out for number one, and it's still going on today. He's not denying that the courts can administer justice in the case where there is some legitimate legal action to be handled. He's not advocating, folks, an end to the rule of law. If he was advocating an end to the rule of law we would end up with a society in chaos and that's not what he's advocating. What he's advocating is that we stop this nonsense of everybody trying to to take or get rich at somebody else's expense or whatever the case may be. People may say, what if somebody's out to steal my company? Can I not legitimately defend myself or my employees? Yes, you can. 
Again, I think that's beyond what Christ is addressing. He's not forbidding legitimate justice in criminal matters. He is addressing these personal, selfishly motivated matters. I think it's a situation much like what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 6. You read 1 Corinthians 6, and believe it or not, even in that church family there at Corinth, they were dragging one another into court against one another, and they were suing one another. And Paul said, what are you doing? You're going before unbelieving judges and unbelieving courts. Do you not realize that you're going to judge the world, and you're even going to judge angels? Oh yeah, that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. To born again believers. You're going to judge angels. What's his point? His point is if there's some disagreement. Can you not get a few people together in the body of Christ. Who have the gift of wisdom and discernment. Very mature level headed people. Who can hear your disagreement. And settle the matter. And, and then you live by that settlement. Can you not do that? And, and, and if worse comes to worse. If you lose something. Take the loss. Folks, it's a disgrace sometimes what goes on even in the body of Christ. You say, oh, pastor, that nothing like that happens. <laughs> Don't be so hasty. I can tell you, you have a case right now. I'm not going to name the church. I'm not going to name the pastor. It, it, it's one of our own Southern Baptist, big church, 6,000 members at the time, 1,600 in active attendance. One of the best known guys in our convention, a leading church. Back in 2007, it all started. His daughter was getting married. And he and his wife limited the reception. They said, we, there's no way. We, how, how in the world would you have a wedding reception? Invite everybody. Church said, Pastor, everybody wants to be there. Everybody wants to come. I can't afford that. Church said, tell you what, we're going to split the cost of just the food with you. Passed through finance committee and everything. Boy, I tell you what, that got people hot. Why are we spending money like that? A rich member of the church stepped forward. I said, tell you what, he said, tell you what, if people are upset about this, whatever the church was going to do to pay the church's half so everybody could come, uh, I'll pay that for the church. Still didn't settle matters with some. They didn't like money being spent that way. From what I understand, the whole wedding and reception, though, was just the icing on. It was what, there was a lot of stuff brewing. And that was just kind of the catalyst. You know who I feel sorry for in that case? I feel sorry for that young couple who was getting married. Finally, that church family had to vote out one of the ringleader in all this who was a trustee of the church. They voted him out. He turned around and sued the church and then the pastor turned around and sued him. I'm serious. Folks, what's all that sound like? Sounds like kids out on a playground squabbling, doesn't it? What does that do to the name of Christ? That hit the press. That's not gossip. It hit the press. It was big time press. You may have read about it. That's shameful to the cause of Christ. It's all this personal back and forth retaliation and getting even and taking revenge. And Jesus says, no, stop it. Don't even go there. Enough is enough. Somebody's got to break the cycle. Don't you know they need to hear that today in the Middle East? Because they're still living by that eye for an eye. Now I realize that when you have been done wrong by somebody, you want to get even. Or you wish you could get even. Let somebody do your kids wrong. Woo! Now parents, I'm talking about 
when somebody legitimately does your kids wrong, I'm not talking about all this childish stuff. You really want to know one of the reasons? One of, it, it, again, it's, it was just the catalyst. There were other issues. One of the reasons why this year we didn't continue with Upward, and by the way, it's a decision not just we made, but some other churches, I think, learned the same lesson. Now, the main reason is over the holiday season, everything about Upward dominates everything on the church calendar. And some of you are coming to us, won't do, couldn't do it. Dominates stuff on the church calendar and wears out a couple of our staff people. So, so uh, the, the main thing is it was a poor stewardship of a church's time and money. But there are other things that brought that to a head. And, and, and let me be honest, I'm not just talking about people. I'm talking about people in the community who brought their kids here. Here's our gym packed out with parents and they were yelling and screaming at coaches and refs and getting in the faces of other parents and coaches and refs and grabbing people afterwards and saying things and making threats. Uh, the staff was coming to me almost weekly saying, here's a new incident that happened this past Saturday. And finally we decided, do we really want to continue to do this as a church? Folks, it's not the kids, it's the parents. Stuff like that doesn't happen in men's or women's leagues, but you, you let parents get upset about that. Watch some YouTube videos or something of parents at sporting events today and all the fights and all the yelling and all the cursing and everything that breaks out and everybody's mad. And finally we say, do we really want to be doing that? I'm not talking about childish stuff like that. If you're guilty in a case like that, parents, grow up. But you let somebody legitimately hurt your kid. What do you want to do? Mm, revenge. And Jesus says, don't do it. Stop. For one thing, you don't know all the facts. You don't have all the facts. You don't know why decisions were made that were made in all cases. You don't know motives. If you knew the real story, if, if you knew why that person that you might be seething and anger against did what they did, you might understand better. And hey, you might have done the very same thing. That's why Romans 12 says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Only God knows the real story. Only God knows every heart. So instead of retaliating, Jesus says, leave the matter to God. I got a question for you this morning. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe he knows all? Do you believe God is just and loving and that God will legitimately Settle all score, whatever needs to be straightened out. You think God can straighten out the crook and get everything right in the end and make the right judge? Do you believe God's able to do that? Amen. Then Jesus is saying, leave the matter to him. Leave the matter to him. And by the way, leaving the matter to him, you may never see the outcome of it all, but that's not the point. If God is sovereign and God is just and God is loving, God is always going to do the right thing in the right way in the right time. Then he talks about personal humiliation. Situations beginning there in verse 41. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You need to understand what's going on there. Back, back in that day, Roman, the Roman soldiers, remember Rome ruled over Israel. And they hated it. They despised the Romans. They despised the Roman soldiers. Here the Roman soldiers were everywhere. They were guarding this site and they were here and they were here and they were riding their horses around. They were guarding the land. And a whole clan of zealots remember Barabbas Barabbas you want me to deliver Jesus to you or Barabbas and the crowd said give us Barabbas 
crucified Jesus. Barabbas was a zealot. You know why Barabbas was a hero to many of the people? Because the zealots would band together in little clans and they would literally try to go after the Roman soldiers. Even kill them if they could. So here's a Roman soldier. Here, here you are with your family. Maybe you're going to the temple. Maybe it's the Sabbath. And there's rules and regulations what you can and cannot do. Here's a Roman soldier. He's not living under those rules. He comes by with a, his, all his gear and he looks at you and he says, You, come here. You, come here. Carry my gear. Roman law said you had to carry his gear for one mile. They could make you do it. You go your one mile, you drop it, he can get another. Uh, Israelite carried another mile. And you see what Jesus is saying here? He, you're carrying his gear for a mile and you get to the end of that mile and he says, okay, you can go ahead and set that down. I'll find somebody. And you say, you know what? I've kind of enjoyed our conversation. You mind if we continue this conversation? I'd like to go with you another mile. I kind of like your company. You reckon the conversation that second mile might be a little different? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? I'll tell you why I'm doing it. You heard about that man Jesus? Yeah, whom we crucified. Yeah, yeah. Well, I became a follower of his. Plants a seed, doesn't it? Carry it the second mile. Let's apply that to today. How about instead of hating authority figures and organizing marches in the streets, what if those organizing marches instead organized acts of kindness towards those in authority? Do you reckon attitudes in America might start changing? Wouldn't happen overnight, but it would. Young people. Your principals, your teachers, authority figures. How about your attitudes towards them? Adults, your attitude towards your boss. Do you respect his or her authority or do you blow them off? What if they ask you to go the second mile? Just what if we change the conversation and said, yes, I'll do that. I'll help you. I'll respect you in what you've asked me to do. Can I do something else to help? What could happen? You see, all we're doing all around us in society today, what do we do? We inflame, we inflame, we inflame. Everybody's pouring gasoline and gasoline and gasoline on things. And Jesus is saying, stop it. Don't douse, uh, don't, don't uh, fan the flames, douse the flames. You've got the power to change the conversation. D.A. Carson, one of the most respected biblical scholars in the world, commentary on Matthew, you need to get it if you don't have it. D.A. Carson writes, this command here was clearly anti-zealot. Again, the zealots were those who were out to hurt the Romans any way they could. He says this command, this command would have been read as very anti-zealot. Barabbas, you and your gang, stop what you're doing. Enough. Folks, let's help calm down the rhetoric going on in America right now. How can we do this from the classroom to attitudes against policemen who pull you over to your boss to elected officials? Let's tone the rhetoric down, show some respect, go the extra mile, and just see what happens. Verse 42, Jesus talks about his followers being those who are giving, not just looking out for self all the time. Don't turn away from somebody in need. Verse 43 goes back to Leviticus. But Leviticus, remember, said, love your neighbor as yourself. Question, do you even know your neighbors? 
How are you going to love your neighbor if you don't even know your neighbor? What do we do today? Pull in the driveway, hit the garage clicker, pull the car in, hit it again, lower the garage, and we go in and don't ever get out and get to know any of our neighbors. You might have a neighbor next door to you that is dying. Would love you to be praying for him or her. We talk about going around the world to reach the world for Christ and sometimes there's a neighbor right next door to us and we don't even reach out to him or her. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember Jesus was asked on one occasion about the greatest commandment of all. He said the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He was quoting from Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. The Jews would enter into worship and they would uh, all the time repeat the Shema. Jesus said that's the greatest commandment of all. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said all the commandments are summed up by those two because it deals with the vertical relationship. If I'm loving God with all my heart and soul and mind and body and strength, a lot of other commandments about seeking him are going to be taken care of in that one. If I'm loving my neighbor as myself, a lot of things, he's not going to have to worry about me hurting him or stealing from him or talking against him because I'm going to love him as myself but the religious leaders came along and they added a little caveat to it love your neighbor Leviticus said finish that with me and hate your neighbor the Old Testament didn't say that they added that hate your enemy Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. Gentiles, anybody, a non-Jew would have been the primary enemy. Uh, An Orthodox Jew would have said, you're walking along and you see a Gentile woman struggling and in labor to have a baby. Don't you stop and help her. If you stop and help her, you'll be sharing and bringing another Gentile into the world. He said, Gentile, God created Gentiles just to be fuel for the fires of Gehenna. That's the only reason some some of the Orthodox rabbis were saying, the only reason there would be other, other people rather than a Jew. Gentile, God just made Gentiles to be the wood, the kindling for the fires of hell. Jesus said, you've heard all that kind of stuff, but I tell you, no, that's not right at all. You love your enemy. You pray for them. And it's present tense. It's not that, hey, just one time I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and go in to work this week and say, you know what? Um, I'm going to do one kind thing for my body. It's the only thing I'm ever going to do for him. He better appreciate it. No, Jesus is saying this is to be your ongoing attitude, to pray for him, pray for her. Boy, that's hard, isn't it? Isn't that hard? But what happens when you're praying for somebody like that? You change, right? You say, no way, I'm not going to do that. Then don't claim to be a follower of Jesus. Right? Don't claim to be a follower of Jesus. Don't go and tell everybody you're a Christian if you're not going to do that because then they'll get the wrong idea of what it means to be a Christian. And remember Jesus on the cross. Did Jesus have enemies? Yeah, and what did they do about him? They nailed him to a cross, and on the cross he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You and I need to remember that next time we're thinking about our enemies. We say, oh, I can't. I'm not sure I can pray for them. Jesus on the cross dying prayed for his enemies. You see, folks, these are some of the most difficult commands we could ever be given in life because we get angry, we want to get even, we want to hold grudges, we dislike people. And that is unfortunately what the world sees of the church today. And the world concludes they're no different than we are. Why do we need to go to church? Why do we need to be a Christian? At least that's the excuse they use. 
Folks, we need to understand that these are issues where the very reputation of the cause of Christ is at stake. We have people in one church over here, and there's a little spat in Sunday school, and a few families say, oh, I don't like them anymore. I'm going to go to that church over there. We have young people, oh, I don't like her. I don't like him in the youth group. And they, they move to another church over, over there. Or they come here. They come here. Or they leave there. Not because God's calling them to, but because somebody said something or done something and you're not willing to do what Jesus is saying right here you need to do. We got people moving around constantly in life from one job to the next because they can't turn the other cheek, can't get along with people. Got people moving from one neighborhood to the next because they're not willing to love their neighbors from one youth group to the next, from one Bible study group to the next, from one church to the next. Why? Because people don't know how to love anybody except those who are just like them and love them right back. And meanwhile, the world is watching. They're watching. You know how I know they're watching? Because you come here to this church perhaps and you talk ugly about your former church. And I'm sure it probably, I don't know, probably my guess is maybe somebody's left here maybe talks ugly about you. Or you go to work and you talk ugly about maybe others in your men's Bible study group or ladies' Bible study group. I hear sometimes people talking ugly about pastors they had way back then. And you know what that gives me the assurance of? That just gives me the assurance, you talk ugly about me too. That's the way the world's watching and they're listening. And they're thinking, why do I need to go with you to church why do I you say don't you want to know my Jesus no that's what some of them are saying what could happen if Christians were more forbearing what kind of witness could we be if we did in fact do what Jesus is speaking of here folks it would be radical I want you to think about something else here too. Do you realize these are commandments that you cannot carry out unless you have an enemy? You ever thought about that? Turn the other cheek? If you're going to turn the other cheek, what's got to happen? Somebody got to hit you in one cheek first. If you're going to love your enemy as, you, as yourself, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to have an enemy. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, oh God, give me some enemies. But if you have them, he's saying this is how you treat them. He said if you're only willing to pray for and love and hang out and fellowship with those who are just like you in your little group, us four and no more, congratulations, even the unbelieving pagans do that. The IRS agents do that. You pat me on the back, I'll pat you on the back. You speak kindly of me, I'll speak kindly of you. We're just like, hey, we'll hang out with you. Sean, stay away, you know, have other enemies. She said this, I don't like that. He said that, I don't like that. I don't don't like that group over there, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And Jesus says, stop it. Love those who aren't like you. Pray for them. Pray for those even who might use you in some way. Look at verse 48. This is God's standard. In verse 48, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's God's standard. And almost all commentators will say what that word perfect there means, mature and complete. And yeah, it's true. I agree it's true. It is only a disciple of Jesus, mature and complete, taking the word of God seriously who's going to do this. Let's think about that word. What if it's stronger than that? What's Jesus saying? You know what Jesus is saying? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's telling 
you and me, you can't do it without me. People think they can live the Christian life in their own strength. No, you can't. You need Him. Because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Surely in these areas I've covered today, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and we need His strength and His help. Because see, this is what I've spoken of this morning in this text. This is God's standard. You can't do it without Him. And that's the point too, isn't it? You need Christ. You need His help. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This morning, has there ever been a time in your life in the past that you recognize, yeah, I, I, I have sinned and I, I need Jesus. If you don't know Christ... If you've never been born again, you've never been saved, you don't have the assurance of your forgiveness and peace with God and a home in heaven, I'd love to pray with you this morning. Come, come to Christ so that we can pray for you. There may be some here this morning, nothing at all related to this message whatsoever. But you're looking for a church home and you say, I want to be at a church that's going to preach and teach the Bible. Maybe you want to move your membership here. You come forward. Others, I want you to reflect on how you do at responding to those who may not say nice things about you or do nice things. Maybe you've got, maybe your boss or who knows. Is your response just like everybody else around you who doesn't even profess to know Christ? Or are you willing to be a witness to the group? Say, hey guys, Let's pray for our boss. Huh? Yeah, let's pray for him. Let's go the extra mile. Let's go the extra mile for her. Is there vengeance in your heart? Is there anger? Lay all that down. Lay it down. Are you rebellious towards those in authority? Lay it down. Go the extra mile. Change the conversation. There may be somebody that comes to your mind right now that you not only need to pray for, but maybe you even need to go to them and say, you know what? Because you hurt me and said some things about me, boy, I retaliated. You don't even know what all I've done. And you need to get right with them. Are you willing to do that? Father, speak to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.